Good morning. Good to be with you. Uh, excited to share this morning as we continue in our series called Off the Grid. Kind of a five-week series. We're right in the middle of week four, looking at some of the, the wilderness narratives throughout Scripture. And the wilderness plays this pivotal key role in Scripture and in the lives of so many, including ourselves. It's kind of like spiritual boot camp, where God is like training us and preparing us and forming us into his people. Last week, Ed used the metaphor of, of renovation, where God is renovating us. He's kind of stripping away and he's rebuilding something new. And this morning, I want to look at maybe the most classic kind of wilderness narrative. It's sort of the archetype uh, story of the wilderness. It's the Israelites wandering in the wilderness with Moses. You might be familiar with this story and this text from the Old Testament, from Exodus and Numbers. Um, it spans a long period of time, 40 years. And so we're going to jump in kind of right partway through the middle. But let me just refresh your memory a little bit on the story because the context of this story is actually really important. If you remember, uh, we pick up the story in Exodus. Uh, the Israelites are in slavery for 400 years. Um, they're, they're in slavery, they're working, they're under Pharaoh, and God, as you know, he raises up Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, uh, to lead them into the promised land. And this is where we get some of those great epic narratives of uh, the plagues and eventually the crossing of the Red Sea. But there's an interesting detail that's so often missed in this narrative that I think is important for us to kind of catch on to. Um, before the Israel, after the Israelites leave Egypt, but before they've crossed the Red Sea, there's this kind of window of time where they're, they're trekking their way towards the Promised Land. They haven't crossed the Red Sea. And we get this interesting detail in Exodus 13. It says this, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Scholars argue the direct route north was an 11-day journey from Egypt to the Promised Land, but God takes them into the desert for two years, which, as you know, extends into 40 years. It's a long detour. The Israelites think they're ready to go. Like they, the, the text says they're ready for battle. And yet God knows they're not, and so he leads them into the wilderness. So often the wilderness, this kind of season of life and a season of our faith, can feel like an inconvenient detour can feel like we're lost, we're wandering, we're purposeless. Like there's this, there's this massive gap, this awkward in-between between where we are and where we want to be or even where we think God wants us to be. And, and the wilderness feels like this purposeless waste of time when in reality God often leads us there. God often brings us right into the wilderness to form us, to shape us, to refine us. It's like his place of preparation. We want God to expedite this season or, or remove it altogether when in fact God has some work he wants to do in us, something he wants to teach us. And it's the same for the Israelites. We pick up the story in Exodus 16. I'm going to read a big chunk this morning. 
says this, the whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community <laughs> grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into the to the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. They're so dramatic. Like somehow in their imagination, they were, it was an all-you-can-eat buffet of meat every night in slavery. Isn't that true? Like sometimes we, we, in hindsight, imagine something so different than what was reality. Like our perspective of the past is so skewed. Like things were so good before COVID. Like life was so perfect and simple and easy when in reality, we know that's not the case. The text goes on. It says, The Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. A little further down, it says this, that evening, quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the, when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. Surprise, surprise, people not following their spiritual leader. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell, so Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed. When the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning. As Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it, Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. It's a gift. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. Last verse. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Mm. 
The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. Manna and quail, 40 years. That is not a diet that would bode well for gluten-free vegetarians today. Like, they would not last three days. I'm fascinated by this story. It's a long period of time to eat the same food day in, day out. Such a formative period of time for the people of God. And not only does God kind of do this this miracle every single day by, by bringing dew that turns into wafers in the middle of the desert. Not only does God do that every day, we get this picture of God kind of acting like a shepherd to his people. There's a theme here where God is sort of like shepherding his community, his people. He's he's leading them. They need instruction. They need direction. Like the people, they grumble and whine. and, And like any sheep, they're stubborn. And they get hungry and they get hangry. And they whine and grumble. I love that word in the text. They grumble to Moses. They complain. And so God provides food for them. Then God tells them not to store any extra food Uh, after they've taken what they needed, and of course they go and store extra food, and it turns bad. And then God tells them not to get any food on the Sabbath, and of course they go out on the Sabbath and look for food. Like, they just are stubborn. They don't get it. They need instructions and boundaries and object lessons apparently every day. But what's going on here? Beyond just that, if the wilderness is kind of like spiritual boot camp, if it's like God's training ground, his preparation ground for us, What is it that he's preparing them for? What is it that he's refining and stripping away? I want to suggest the issue here is actually the issue behind many, if not most, obstacles to a vibrant life of faith, which is the issue of control. I won't do a show of hands this morning to see how many of you identify as a control freak, but I imagine there's a few of you in the room with me. And if your spouse is like peering directly at you, just don't make eye contact. It's a subtle cue. Just stay the course. Um, the truth is all of us have a desire for control. We have this, this desire to have control. Some of us more than others, to, depending in large part on your personality, specifically type A people who like need everything in a particular way. And that's not all bad. It's a natural response to the world around us, to a world that's complex and uncertain. We share a world that is marked by confusion and chaos and uncertainty. And we have this sense that if we could kind of subdue it, if we could rule over it, if we could be in control of our environment, Uh, things would go okay. We can kind of alleviate our fear, so we believe. So control becomes a mechanism to alleviate our fear of the unknown. We feel better about uncertain situations if we're in control. This is why some people have this this obsession with cleaning their house, um, particularly when the world is going crazy. Uh, because you, you might not feel like you can control what's happening out there, but at least you can control what's happening in your own home, and so it has to be spotless. There's a, there's a relief, there's kind of a comfort that comes with that as we alleviate our fear of the unknown. This is also why there's been such a rise in conspiracy theories over the last couple of years. Think about it. Our world has gotten more and more uncertain and complex over the last few years with the pandemic, Uh, It's gotten more chaotic and disrupted. 
and, and there's just this natural feeling we have to mitigate our fear and our anxiety and our uncertainty about the future, we look to something to make sense of the world, something to make sense of the randomness, the chaotic nature of our world, the uncertainty. Think about a conspiracy theory. It takes a whole bunch of random events and starts to kind of piece them together in some sort of framework. And in doing so, it actually kind of alleviates our fears because all of a sudden we feel like we know what's going on. We feel like we know what's going on beyond what the media is telling us or beyond what you know, most people think. We have a sense of control over our environment. So whether it's a conspiracy theory or kind of in the spiritual landscape, a self-appointed prophet who claims they know exactly why the pandemic happened and when it's gonna stop and they've heard directly from God and now they have, you know, they're blogging on YouTube to like, you know, give you that information. We are drawn to those kinds of people because they give us a sense of certainty. They give us a measure of control. Even if it's just doom and gloom, at least we know what to prepare for. At least we know what's coming. We know and we have a sense of what's coming. So there's a sense of control that comes with it. But here's the problem with grasping for control. By and large, control is an illusion. In 1970, a Harvard psychologist named Ellen Langer coined the term, the illusion of control. It's this belief that we have more control over our life than we actually do, even over totally random events. A small example of this is the person who wears their like, lucky t-shirt or their you know, purple shoes or whatever, whenever their sports team plays, because somehow they feel like if they wear these shoes, the outcome of this game that's happening all across the country will be impacted. Like we live with this illusion of control that somehow what I do in this moment will affect something totally out there. We like that feeling of control. Feels good to have a sense to play a, to play a role, to feel like we know what's gonna happen. And yet, it's been estimated that we have only about 15% of the control over our lives as we think we do. By and large, control is an illusion but we feel better when we feel like we're in control. Here's an example. How many of you, we will do a show of hands, how many of you, when you go into an elevator, immediately press the close door button like as quick as you can? You wanna get in and out. Okay, a bunch of you are lying. There, thank you for the, the, the high hand, Matthew. <laughs> He's proud of it. <laughs> Here's the thing. That button does nothing. That button does absolutely nothing. Since 1990, there have been laws that regulate how long the door must stay open. And so you go in and you press the button, and here's the thing, the elevator companies know this, but they still make the button so that it lights up. They still put the button in there. And so it doesn't matter how many times you smash that button, it's not closing any quicker. But here's, here's the crazy part. I actually know this fact to be true. And I did this this week. I went into the elevator and I knew it to be true and I still pressed the button. Why? because I like control. I like knowing the button is gonna light up. I like knowing that I'm in control of this elevator. It's so strange, but somehow it makes me, kind of mitigates my, my waiting, my fear of the unknown by pressing this button. It's an illusion, it's a placebo, but it makes me feel better about my situation. And in so many areas of our life today, we are encouraged to take control, to be fully self-reliant and independent, to kind of take ownership, to be the, quote, captain of your ship or the master of your fate, to, to kind of own your destiny. 
And here in the hot, dry wilderness, the very first lesson God teaches his people is that they are not in control. Each and every day, the Israelites wake up to the reality of manna on the ground. It's a miracle. They did not manufacture it on their own. Each and every day, they wake up to the reality of God's provision. Each and every day, for 40 years, their illusion of control is stripped away bit by bit. And they learn to trust and rely and depend on God. Each and every day, they're reminded of this very simple truth that they are utterly and completely dependent on God. Author Corey Russell says this. He says, throughout the Bible, we see that God chooses again and again to form his people in the wilderness. It is the furnace of transformation. I love that image. The place where our facades, illusions, fantasies, and props are removed, and we come face to face with our nothingness. In the wilderness, God strips us of our independence and rebellion and teaches us to depend on him. Uh, I grew up in Cranbrook, BC in the Kootenays and uh, my parents had six kids, uh, I know, scary thought, uh, six kids of which I'm the youngest. And um, so very full house. My mom was a more than full-time stay-at-home mom, of course. And uh, my dad, actually growing up, worked as a taxidermist. Um, so he would mount uh, wildlife, typically. Uh, people would you know, go hunting. They'd get their elk or their bear or their deer or whatever. And they would come bring it to my dad, and he would mount it for them. And that's what my dad did for 20 years. Um, but eventually, my dad got to the point where his work kind of became unfulfilling. And he felt like all of the sort of creative juices that God had given him, all of the creative wiring and gifts that God had given him were kind of going to waste. They weren't being utilized or used or or, or benefited at all. And eventually he came to a breaking point where he was just crying out to God for direction. And he felt like God spoke to him and told him to go do what he loved to do. For my dad, that was art. My dad's so creative. He was always drawing and sketching and creating and sculpting. And so he tapped into this creative kind of gift that God had given him, and he started doing art. He started painting and sculpting and creating, and finally he kind of found his niche creating bronze sculptures out of clay. Um, and most of them are wildlife. He creates wildlife that he was spending, he spent 20 years um, uh, mounting and forming for people. And so he started creating bronze art. And some galleries in the province uh, noticed him, and they, they picked him up. They started selling his bronzes. And so he started creating more and more. And eventually he gave up his taxidermy business Altogether, we have a shop out back at, in Cranbrook. We have a shop in my backyard where my dad has worked most of his life. And eventually, he gave up the taxidermy. And so, just think about it. My mom is at home with six kids. My dad is the sole provider in terms of income. And my dad decides mid-career to become an artist full time. Sounds like a great plan, right? Uh, The thing about art, especially fine art, and maybe some of you are into this, uh, there is no predictability in the business. And so we would go, uh, some of my dad's bronzes, uh, it's fine art, so some of them sell for like upwards of $20,000 for, you know, a sculpture. And my dad would go to um, an art show, sometimes the Calgary Stampede or somewhere else, and 
he would come back and we would ask him, like, Dad, how'd you do? And he would sell, you know, multiple bronzes. And we were like, amazing, we're getting, like, you know, new clothes for school. Um, and then other times, he'd come back and he didn't sell anything. And we would go months with no income, like nothing. There was no kind of backup income stream, no income at all for months and months and months at a time. Six kids, my dad is out there sculpting in clay. No income for months. But one of the great legacies of faith that my parents have given us kids, one of the things they modeled to us is the ability to trust in God to provide. Over years and years and then decades and decades, we saw God provide for our family. So often right at the last minute when we were, my parents were wondering if they made a mistake or if they should do something different. And God would provide just enough to get by. God would provide just enough for that day. And over that time, my parents built up this incredible trust and dependence on God. This rock solid belief that God will take care of them today as they put their trust in him. And I wonder if this is the first lesson the Israelites learn. This is the first thing God teaches the Israelites in his spiritual training grounds. It's the first thing and the lesson that continued on for 40 years. The manna kept coming every day, even when they probably thought, God, we get it. You're going to provide manna. He still did every day, 40 years. Maybe this was the reason why. Because learning to trust in God is really the essence of what it means to have faith. Learning to trust in God is really what it means to have faith. Faith is not just a belief system, like a mental exercise, an intellectual exercise that we do where we kind of ascribe to particular theological doctrines. Faith is an active and present trust in God. This is why faith and control are incompatible. You can't have both. The author of Hebrews says this about faith. He says, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. We cannot see. And when our illusion of control and independence is shattered, when it's stripped away, we can either try to take matters into our own hands even more and kind of grasp for control as best as we can, or we can learn to live by faith. We can trust we can grab hold of the promise of God. We can cling to the presence of God. We can learn, as the scriptures say, to walk by faith, not by sight. So often faith is forged in the wilderness, in the dry seasons of our life, the empty, purposeless seasons of our life, where we feel like we're just at a standstill, or this awkward in-between where God wants to take us where we are right now, and God is forging our faith. He's building it. He's fashioning it. There's a reason why so many people come to faith in a crisis, in a season of crisis, right? Because so most of our lives, we feel a sense of control. I can kind of control what I'm going to do this afternoon and where I'm going to go eat and all of those kinds of things. But a crisis, whether it's a, a diagnosis or the, the loss of a loved one or some other crisis, it brings us face to face with the reality that we are not in control. That there's a sense of life that is out of our small control. And the invitation for us as the band comes this morning and we close, the invitation for us is to be people who walk by faith. Who walk by faith. Not just believe, but walk, like live by faith. 
to be people who learn to let go of our grip over the need to know exactly what's going to happen every moment of every day. To be people who live with a quiet confidence that God will take care of us, whatever may come, a pandemic, inflation, the loss of a loved one, a diagnosis, a breakup, that God will look after us when we put our trust in him. Living by faith doesn't mean we stop planning or preparing for the future. It simply means we learn to let go of our grip. We learn to let go of our grip. We hold our future loosely in the presence of God. We let go of what we think life could and should look like at any given moment. We learn to trust and depend on God to see us through. I love the way David says it in Psalm 23. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. In other words, the Lord is looking after me and that's enough. That's enough, that's enough for me. God is my shepherd. What kind of grip do you have over your life? What kind of grip do you have over your future, over the unknown, over what's gonna happen this month, this year? over the timeline of when you'll have kids or how many kids you'll have or what those kids will do and where they'll go to college and what they'll grow up to be. What kind of grip do you hold over your career, your income, your salary, your kind of rise to the top of your company? What kind of grip do you have over your home and where you'll live and what you'll do for work, how big your house will be and what kind of view you'll have? What kind of grip do you have over your life, your future, the unknown? Do you live with a tight grip on what life should and could look like? Or have you learned to let go, to hold your plans loosely and trust in the provision of God? Are you overwhelmed and anxious from constantly trying to prepare and plan for every possible outcome of every possible situation? Or have you learned to let go and appreciate each day as a gift? to hold your plans loosely before God, receive each day as a gift, and trust in the provision of God that he'll take care of you He's your shepherd. What if spiritual maturity looks more like that? What if it looks more like having the, what if it looks less like having the next 15 years of your life all mapped out to a T, and more like having a radical dependence on God to take care of you? We're gonna pray in just a second, but I actually wanted to leave you with a poem that I came across this week. I've been meditating on this poem all week. It says this, nothing before, nothing behind, the steps of faith fall on the seeming void and find the rock beneath. Would you pray with me? And as you do, would you just kind of open up your hands just physically, just kind of release, like let go of your grip. Maybe some of you are gripping the edge of your seat. Do you just release your grip as a symbol of releasing control over what comes next, as a way of receiving the gift of today, as we open our hands and let go of the future and release them into the presence of God. Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence. God, we, we, we recognize you as a, as a good shepherd this morning. You take care of us. You look after us. You protect us. You lead us. You guide us. May we cling, God, to no other thing but your presence in the midst of the unknown. 
may we not be distracted, Lord, by anything, by any person, by any theory that might lead us astray. God, would we cling to your presence? And Lord, this morning, we just let go of our grip. We loosen our grip over what life should and could look like. Would you teach us, God, how to be dependent on you? Would you teach us, God, how to rely on you? As Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. Would you teach us what that means, God, to trust in you each day? To know that when we get up tomorrow, you will look after us. You will take care of us. You will provide for us. So we rest, God, in your presence. Would it not take us 40 years to learn this truth? Would you teach us today, this week, this month, this year, how to trust and rely on you for all that we need? You're a good shepherd. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.